The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. through the Sermon on the Mount, as it is known, Matthew 5 through 7. We're in chapter 6, began chapter 6 last time with Jesus addressing the troublesome issue of letting our worship acts, whether that be giving or prayer or fasting, be done in some theatrical fashion so as to impress human beings who might be watching and keeping track of how we worship. And he forbade us to do that. Now, I skipped over a portion in that that I said I would come back and look at the important issue that the Lord's Prayer is laid down here. And the other thing, besides theatrical worship where we care mostly about what other people think, uh, the other thing Jesus was against was what he called heaping up empty phrases in prayer. So listen to our Lord speaking. This is Matthew 6. I begin reading at verse 7. Jesus said, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive forgive your trespasses. This is the word of our God. What we call the Lord's Prayer actually could be better defined as the disciples' prayer because Jesus offered it instruction as instruction for his disciples in the first century and the 21st as well. Some have said the real Lord's Prayer is in John 17, the long prayer prayed before the cross. Well, we're not going to stop calling it the Lord's Prayer. And isn't it amazing to realize how well-known and memorized this prayer is for people of all kinds of denominations and no, hardly any Christian background at all. Uh, I always close a graveside burial service with an invitation for folks to uh, pray the Lord's Prayer with me in unison if they wish to before the benediction. And I know voices join in from every background, every denomination or sect that you could possibly think of, and we differ only in whether we should say debts or trespasses, but the Lord's Prayer comes through. We regard this prayer as the quintessence of what true prayer should be. And there's such economy of thought here. 
And the, the thoughts that are piled one on another are so full and so rich that it's just amazing. We know that we could take each phrase and devote a sermon to each, and I've done that years past, quite a long time ago. Today I'm looking at the whole prayer. I want you to see the whole thing in scope and not just a line or two. And think about the true essentials of prayer. I remember when I was studying world religions way back in college, learning about Buddhists in Tibet, maybe other countries too, but Tibet is known for this, when they make prayer wheels. I don't know if any of you have ever seen these or seen a picture of a device. It's some kind of a cylinder, often made of metal. You even think of something kind of like a tin can. And uh, you hold it by a, a handle, but it spins. And so you rotate it so it spins, but you fasten to the inside of the prayer wheel your written requests to God. And the belief is that as the prayer wheel rotates, the prayer is being repeated and uh, somehow offered up into the ether uh, for someone somewhere to hear. Buddhists are never quite clear because their concept of God is quite different than yours. Well, the Sermon on the Mount has Jesus telling disciples they need to have something higher and deeper than piling up empty phrases, stringing language together that maybe sounded good but really didn't mean much of anything. And he was against here what he would have called pagan religious babbling. Don't pray that way, Jesus said. Pray with sincerity and with heartfelt passion and know who you are praying to. The Lord's Prayer in the Greek is 57 words. I've timed it. You can say it in 30 seconds. The structure of this remarkable prayer, though, has such depths that it is truly amazing. I'm going to see it in just two main divisions here today, but there are three subpoints under each of the divisions. First of all, the Lord's Prayer asks us to reverence the great God to whom we pray. And secondly, it teaches us to view our lives through the lens of God's grace. First of all, then, verses 9 and 10 speak about reverencing the great God to whom we pray. I think it can be said that every problem people have in relation to prayer is traceable to some kind of misconception about God. If you don't understand who you're praying to or who he really is, you're not going to pray correctly. And Jesus urges us, above all else, to reverence the great God to whom we pray, to know his name, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. He's giving us a high view of God here, hallowed, holy, set apart, unique, and unlike anything else is your name. All the floodlights of heaven are centered upon who God is as you begin in prayer. Psalm 34.3 has David beginning to pray, saying, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name forever. Can we make God larger? Not in actual fact, of course, but in our view and in the other's view of him, we can Put a magnifier on him and say, we will praise him. We will lift up 
his great name so that men will think higher thoughts of him because no matter how high their thoughts are, they still do not approach the truth of who and what he is. And I think Jesus was asking us to consciously acknowledge the greatness, the majesty of God as we begin to approach him, to be like Job at the beginning of prayer when there's a passage where Job had argued with God. He had, you know, told God very frankly what he thought God was doing wrong, but then he suddenly realized who he was speaking to, and and Job said, I put my hand over my mouth. In stunned silence, he realized he had to be silent before the great eternal God. But you see in this how Jesus mingled the holy be your name issue with calling God what only he ever called God in the Bible, our Father. You've surely been told before that Jewish people were basically scandalized by hearing Jesus say that. They thought he was much too familiar acting with God. But he was speaking about becoming a child of God by the adoption of grace through faith. We just sang a hymn about it. You and I, as sons and daughters of God, through the lordship of Jesus Christ, are adopted as God's children. John 1.12 says, To as many as received Christ, to them he gave power to become children of God. You know, sometimes in society... It might be implied that a child who is not naturally born into a family is in some way inferior to an adopted child, but that's wrong because the adopted child ought to come back and say, you know, if he's he's encountering something like that on the playground, he can say, hey, I know that my father chose me. My mother chose me. I'm not an accident of birth. They chose me to be able to call them mom and dad. And so adoption is a wonderful uh, doctrine for us to understand that God in Christ has adopted us. We weren't naturally his children. People use the phrase child of God very carelessly, and we will often hear somebody say, well, we're all, God's the father of everybody. We're all children of God. Not true. Simply not true. The Bible does not teach that. The phrase child of God is properly applied to those who have been adopted by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Of course, God is creator of all, but he doesn't give all the license to call him father, except that they come by that adoption. So we have a wonderful thing here at the beginning. God is the great creator. He's the high exalted one. And yet, we know know that, but we still address him as our father. And the New Testament even reduces it down to that word, Abba, Daddy. And the Jews said, imagine it. He calls God Daddy. And we say, yes, imagine it. Isn't it wonderful? Now, besides knowing the name of God and still under this first division, Jesus said, your kingdom come. I won't go into everything this could involve, but he wants us to know that a kingdom for him is not lines drawn on a political map. It's not as if you'd be in the satellite in space and some picture was taken that I understand you can actually see the Great Wall of China from satellite pictures. You can actually see some man-made features that define borders and kingdoms. 
Well, that's not what Jesus' kingdom is. Jesus' kingdom is in people who bow before him, people of all different nations. Psalm 2 has the observation of God saying, I have installed my king on my holy hill. He's referring to Christ. Way back there in the Old Testament through David, God was saying, I've got a king. He's a ruler. He's my son. And I've installed him. And he, in the end of all time, will rule over everything. And yet, in Psalm 2, it said that men would gnash their teeth at that and fight against the rule and the lordship of Christ. But yet, if you look at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 11:15 predicts the end of time when God will gather all things together under Christ after his glorious return. And it says there in Revelation, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. No rival then, no opponents then. No one thinking they can topple King Jesus then. They will know and see that God is triumphant in Christ over all. And so his kingdom is spreading today where people learn to call Jesus Lord. But then there's the third item under this first division here. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. You know, we don't tell God he's allowed to do his will. (laughs) He's allowed to do his will whether we consent to it or not. Many people think that prayer is primarily for the purpose of learning God's will for their next step in life. We go and say, God, should I take this job? Should I marry this woman? Should I make this investment? Whatever. We say, we pray to learn God's will. But I want to remind you that prayer is also about recommitting ourselves to obey the many things of God's will that are made plain already. God's will isn't a great big conundrum, a great big mystery that you can't know in any way whatsoever because, as a matter of fact, 80% of it or more is already revealed to you in the Word. And our problem is not so much the 20% that maybe we don't know yet. Granted, there are things that we're not sure about steps we should take, but there's so much we do know that we don't even obey that. One commentator said prayer for the Christian is often like a blacksmith shop. He said, where the cold iron of my stubborn sinful will needs to be heated up and bent if necessary by fire and hammer blows until gradually it is molded to conform with the will of my God. That's what we're praying when we say, your will be done. Lord, bend me. Make me bendable. Make me able to be willing to do what you say, because I acknowledge I often am not. It's like prayer was a laboratory of struggle and surrender where my wants have to come into greater conformity constantly with the divine will. Well, I could go on a lot more in this first section of just knowing God's matchless name and magnifying it. I would challenge you, you've heard me say this on other occasions, to always think about beginning prayer with some burst of praise for naming who and what God is. If you sat down and simply for 10, maybe some of you think you'd run out of words if you sat down for 10 minutes and said, all I'm going to do is give God praise. I'm not going to ask for anything. I'm just going to praise him. Some of you say, I don't know what I would say beyond two sentences. Well, try it. You'll get better at it, I guarantee, if you do it. And you will be refreshed 
and uplifted in your heart if you do nothing but adore God and reverence his great name. But look at the second aspect here, verses 11 to 15, that ask us now to view our lives through the lens of God's grace. And there's one very notable thing you can easily see. If I uh, turned it to a class exercise and asked for responses, I think some of you'd come back pretty quickly if I say, what is different about the sentences beginning at verse 11? Some of you would come back and say, why, the pronouns are all different. Before I was saying, our Father, your name, your kingdom, your will, and look at the pronouns now. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, and so on. Lead us. You see, it's all about us now. Having reverenced God, having made it very clear who we're addressing, someone majestic, someone high who is nevertheless our intimate Father, Now we have the right to say, Lord, I have needs. I put before you specific requests. I don't rush into your presence and and dump the laundry list of requests right on you before I've reverenced you. But now I'm concerned about daily bread. Martin Luther points out that the request for bread is about more than, you know, just literal bread to make a sandwich or accompany your dinner. Bread there is a word that represents all kinds of physical provision of food, of sustenance, of cars to drive, of furniture to sleep on, all the things we need, clothing for our lives, savings for retirement, all the things that we need to sustain our lives are included in daily bread. And also it is often pointed out here that the word daily is there. You know, don't we approach prayer wishing, at least in our secret heart, that, okay, God, you know that I need a job. I desperately need a job. I, I'm not, you know, not able to meet my obligations. The creditors are piling on me and so on. And we start to daydream. And even if you don't play, play the lottery, and by the way, I hope they, my wife engraves on my tombstone after the fact he never did buy a lottery ticket his whole life because I won't have... Uh, But, you know, don't we all fantasize that there's an Uncle George out there somewhere and we're going to hear from his lawyer and say, your dear Uncle George has passed away and left you $2 million. And we say, oh God, if you'd just do that, I promise you I'd give you a million. We think that would take care of things. That would put us on easy street. Well, I think the word daily is in here for a reason. God reminds us that he portions out our needs day by day, week by week, month by month, because we need to trust him for tomorrow's part to come just as yesterday's part came. And here it is like Israel. Remember the famous illustration of Israel in the wilderness with the manna to feed them in a barren place, and they got it. It was sweet-tasting. It was nourishing. But it wouldn't keep overnight except on the Sabbath day. And God taught Israel a marvelous lesson over years of time. I mean, it sounds like the most fantastic miracle. It was a fantastic miracle. They had to go out every day and collect it in a basket, and they had enough to nourish their family, and they were taken care of. And tomorrow's need would be taken care of tomorrow. Daily bread we're asking for. Then with this complicated one that's in here, forgive us as we forgive. 
Now, some people think that this means, well, first we forgive and then God forgives us. It's actually the other way around. God forgives, and how can we not forgive in light of what he has done? As he has let us off the hook of an absolute spiritual death sentence, delivered us from that by Christ, how can we not be forgiving? One psychiatrist wrote, I could send home from their residency in a psychiatric ward most of my patients if only they could learn with certainty that they were forgiven by key people in their lives. Think about that. Is forgiveness really that powerful? I would say indeed it is. And our sin against God and others is likened here to a debt, whether you call it a debt or a trespass. It's an offense against another person. And you're saying, God, forgive me, and I believe you will because of who you are. But I think you're requiring of me also to transmit that forgiveness, to be a conduit of it, not a storage tank, to let it flow through me to other lives. You've taken my sin as far away as the east is from the west, says Psalm 103. I must be ready and willing to forgive, even if someone has brought a a sore offense against me. If I don't, it seems to say that I don't understand how much my sin has offended my God, who is holy. And then finally, this third sub-point under the second point of the prayer, Jesus says, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Well, God would not lead us into temptation. We're, we're affirming what he would not do, but we're asking him to deliver us because there's an enemy who wants to destroy us. And I'm not going to elaborate a lot on this, but I think other parts of Scripture make us believe that we live on a spiritual battlefield. And the more we are clinging to our God and the more we are uplifting him and looking for his will to unfold and forgiving others, the more a wicked, scheming enemy, more devious than Osama bin Laden or any of his kind, desires to destroy us, to trip us, to catch us. We need to simply remember, all I'm going to say about this point is that Christ, who dwells in us by his Holy Spirit, is greater in power than Satan, who temporarily struts his stuff as the ruler of this present evil age who Christ has already conquered. Well, in conclusion here, this quick survey I'm giving you of the Lord's Prayer, somebody said one time, everything in the Christian life is easier to do than prayer. Is that true for you? Everything in the Christian life is easier to do than prayer. I think that has to be true because it's proven in the experience of the Christian world. If we say we're having a fun fellowship activity, a family game night, lots of food, come and have a good time, play board games with people, uh, there'll be a certain number of people who turn out. We've got a film to show you. We've got something to entertain you with, great music. We'll gather a crowd. But if we say, come Thursday night, and we're just going to pray, we don't set up a lot of chairs because not that many will respond. 
because people prove that everything in the Christian life is easier to do than prayer. And some people make excuses for that. They say, oh, well, prayer is a private thing. I, I pray privately. Don't ask me to pray in front of other people. But Jesus is bidding us to come and pray, not in empty phrases, not only in liturgical forms, although written prayers are certainly not forbidden when they're thoughtfully composed, but it's hard to pray. And we still have many questions. Okay, what was the result of that? Where's the answer? You know, where, where should I look for God to, to bring a response? And these things aren't easily answered. It's a relationship that we're forging with our God. We begin it by reverencing the great God who is also our Father, magnifying His name, not going first of all to our petty causes and wants and laundry lists of things we need. We don't start with my name, my kingdom, my glory. We start with your kingdom, your power, your glorious name. And the one we pray to is the high, majestic, holy, singular being who is creator of the universe and judge over all things in time and space and who through Jesus Christ will be the great king of the ages who will triumph in the end of all things. And yet this Jesus, knowing all those words I've just said of who God is, has said, come and begin with two words, our Father. Is that wonderful or what? Our Father is a way to address this majestic Creator God. And when we know that, when we're beginning to see God's glory and will and, and kingdom with reverential awe, we will begin to pray as humble children of the Heavenly Father, which is what we actually are through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a privilege. Christ has opened the door to real prayer that is not heaping up empty phrases. Our Father, we confess that we may be your children by grace through faith and still pray poorly. In the words we use, in the attitudes we bring, in the demands we make, we say that, and Father, I think, well, what am I saying? Demands that I make of the Holy God? Forgive us of our demands. Teach us to come humbly before you in worship, in patience, in the compassion that's been shown to us. Lord God, in Jesus' name, teach us to pray. Amen.